Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. Today, we're going to talk about a subject that's near and dear to my heart. The name of this show is, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. So look, if you're a landlord, if you're a tenant, uh, you lease office space, industrial, retail, or any type of space, you've probably seen (laughs) or heard someone say that. So we're going to cover a few of those items today. So if you're a landlord or tenant, maybe you will not make that mistake and be saying that. Please welcome my first guest. It's Laura Hall. She's partnered with Shelley Hall Williams, a law firm based in Atlanta. Laura, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Laura, you work on a lot of office leases. It's the primary focus of your practice. And, uh, you know, the the name of the show is a little bit funny, but it's a little bit scary when you when you're saying that if you're a landlord or tenant and we we talked about some of the things um, to prep for this show that uh, there's so many things in the lease that you need to cover but if we talk about some of the top ones I think sometimes uh, if you're a tenant especially uh, an oops could be you know guarantees oops I, I personally guaranteed that lease I corporate guaranteed that lease but but it's also important uh, uh, to look out for that if you're a landlord right correct yeah And there are a lot of oops that you can think of from time to time. With respect to guarantees, if you're a tenant that's providing a guarantee, either as an individual or from a corporation standpoint, the the types of things you always want to make sure you include are caps or a limitation on the guarantee. You don't want the guarantee to continue forever. You want there to be an end time when if I've behaved, I've paid my rent on time, the guarantee should go away. Um, From a landlord's perspective, um, you. between an individual versus a corporation, you really don't want individual guarantees. They're very hard to collect on. You have to deal with spousal consents, whether or not the spouse has consented to their joint accounts being subject to a guarantee, which are typically not, um, and how you really ever recover on, from an individual. Um, my personal uh, sort of, if I have a oops that I want to avoid is don't get one from an individual, get it from a parent company that's probably got deep pockets. Um, and if you're going to have a corporate guarantee or individual guarantee with a cap, make sure that that cap includes a cost of enforcement. If you have a cap of $50,000 on, on a guarantee, you spend $20,000 in litigation cover, recovering from the guarantee, then you really haven't gotten the benefit of your bargain. So that's an oops that you really do, definitely want to avoid. Yeah, another one is if your guarantee burns off over time, if it's a $100,000 guarantee and every year it burns off, you want to make sure that it's tied to rental payments, not simply that the tenant has not committed a, a big default, big D default. If you have a guarantee that burns off and, and you just it's an automatic burn off, but that tenant's not paying rent, then you're not really, again, recovering from the guarantor what you had envisioned. So you want to make sure that it's sort of a dollar-for-dollar reduction. If the tenant pays rent, then your guarantee can reduce. If they don't pay rent, then you're liable for the full amount. We've seen that, unfortunately, happen where you have, and in this case, individual guarantors um, whose limitation uh, really gets reduced every month, regardless of whether or not the tenant's paying rent. So avoid that. Uh, That can be a real problem. Yeah. And there's a lot of alternatives, right? So if you're a landlord or a tenant and you're at an impasse on these guarantees, there's lots of ways to, to work that out. If you have willing parties, right, that, oh, that have imaginative counsel like uh, you and, 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 and brokers as well. So one of those is uh, use of a letter of credit. Talk right. to us about that. 
I love letter of credits. If I have a choice and I'm advising a client, definitely go with a letter of credit. They're with a with a personal guarantee. Those are typically immune from bankruptcy to some extent. If the bankruptcy court uh, consolidates a bankrupt uh, debtor's uh, companies so that you're including the guarantor parent company into that bankruptcy, then you can't really recover from the guarantor because now they're subject to the bankruptcy laws. With letters of credit, those are independent contracts between the bank and the beneficiary, and they're outside the bankruptcy. So they're, to me, a much more sure thing than a guarantee. Um, the things you want to avoid that I've seen in drafting is if you're agreeing to give or to obtain a letter of credit and you're again agreeing to some kind of a burn off, you don't want that letter of credit just to state on such and such date this is going to reduce to X amount. Because typically in your lease you've gone to great lengths in putting in there. It only reduces so long as the tenant's been current, they haven't been in default the last 12 months. Um, other types of sort of handcuffs on the reductions. If your letter of credit just calls for automatic reductions, then you really, again, um, you've not gotten the benefit of what you thought you had from an, a credit enhancement standpoint. If I, for the listeners who maybe hasn't, haven't been involved directly in a letter of credit, tell us up quickly or efficiently about the process to get one. Um, well, as, as far as the, the uh, tenant will have to go to its bank and just put up some kind of a collateral to stand behind the letter of credit. The bank will issue a letter of credit to the uh, landlord, which is the beneficiary. We try to negotiate the terms of that letter of credit, which are, if you're dealing with a big bank, they're going to be pretty standard and typical. Um, then the letter of credit gets issued. Um, you hold it into a vault because it's cash. I mean, whatever you're holding, if you lose that letter of credit, then you've lost whatever that credit is. Um, but I do prefer those over guarantees or cash security deposits. How, how expensive are they typically for a tenant? You know, I don't know the exact amount, and I think each bank varies a little bit, but I would say probably a dollar, uh, 1% per thousand, something mm -hmm. along those lines. So it depends mm -hmm. on how big the credit is. It will obviously dictate the cost. Yeah. Um, but I find them to be much more secure than any other type of credit. Right. And you've mentioned burn off and I think 90% mm -hmm. of our listeners know what that means. But but that's typically when hey, maybe you're personally guaranteeing it for the first three years or right. something. And then that kind of reduces over time if you've been a good boy. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or it expires. Or and it if expires. it expires, you want to make sure uh, sort of other things to avoid. You want to make sure that it expires only as to future obligations. Mm -hmm. So if the date it expires, that tenant still owes $25,000 in rent that you haven't now lost your guarantor. Uh, that they're still liable for the things that accrued prior to the expiration date. Right. Okay. Um, and then I've seen some where they, the guarantee and maybe the tenant improvement dollars, the mm -hmm. landlord spend, and maybe any other cost to to get that lease in place. I've exactly. seen that as well. So that's limited to that, and that Absolutely. can amortize down as well. Absolutely. And yeah. it should. I mean, yeah. those are built into the rent payments. So yeah. if you're amortizing really the, I mean, uh, guaranteeing really the the amortized or unamortized out-of-pocket expenses, mm -hmm. those will reduce over time because, again, if, as long as the tenant's behaving and paying rent, then yeah. you're going to be recovering your your out-of-pocket expenses. Yeah. One of the arguments I've had sometimes with a tenant with this didn't want any any guarantees, it's like, well, what about this one? If you're in the space and not paying, you're guaranteed. So you right. tell me this, if you can't pay, you get out. Right. <laughs> I won't go after you. You pay, you stay. <laughs> right. And sometimes they're like, okay, I get that. Yeah, I won't just use your space and, and not pay you. And yeah, that, that'll kick in. Any other thoughts, ideas for kind of working these, these out when there is an impasse for... 
Um, I think if you can negotiate, a lot of times tenants will push back because they don't want to spend the money on um, a, a, a letter of credit, mm -hmm. depending on, again, how much you're asking for. Um, the impasse is trying to negotiate some kind of a reduction in the liability over time. That's mm -hmm. probably your biggest leverage is we want a personal guarantee, but or we want uh, a corporate guarantee, but or a letter of credit, but if, if at some point in time you've paid your rent, you've done what you're supposed to do, we'll, f we'll forgive that or we'll let it burn off. So that's really probably your biggest negotiation point. Yeah. Another thing I've seen too with guarantees is that, you know, when we're repping tenants, we have a long interview process with all the players and let's try to figure out, hey, what are the major important things? And if that's an important thing for you as a tenant, you better put that in the LOI in the beginning. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Just let it be known up front that, hey, there's no guarantee. Right. Just look at this entity, right? Right. Uh, so it doesn't get, you know, you don't get down the road and go, all right, now we've got an impasse. Yeah. Right. And the struggle with the LOIs is that oftentimes the tenant hasn't produced financial statements yet. So when you're negotiating these LOIs, you always have the carve out. Security deposit, credit enhancements, always subject to the landlord's review of whatever your financial information is. And so oftentimes that comes during the course of negotiations, which then tenants don't like because they don't want to have to post a security deposit. They don't want to post certainly a guarantee. Their, their parent companies don't want to provide one. Um, and then, of course, they don't want to spend the money for a letter of credit. But if you can get that information to them up front, then you can alleviate a lot of... Quick, quick answer. Thanks. As a lawyer, you're doing the lease, you and you're just now seeing the LOI. You prefer one that's 12 pages or two? Two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> there is an absolute two on that. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a lot of other major points on. Oops, I should have covered that in the lease. So stay with us. We'll cover those, including operating expenses and controlling them, and also options to renew if you're a landlord or a tenant. They're very important. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Our topic today is, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. My guest is Laura Hall. She's a partner with Sheely Hall Williams Law Firm. Laura, thanks for being with us and Glad to be here. talking to us about uh, leases today and some of the things that are, are the gotchas that mm -hmm. you really want to watch out for. And one of those things, I think, uh, whether you're a landlord uh, or a tenant, maybe more so if you're a tenant, but uh, a landlord or tenant, it's operating expenses, right, and right. controlling those. Right. It is. If you're a tenant, you certainly want to cap on any kind of increases in controllable operating expenses. And as uh, with landlords, they don't like them, even though I feel like most landlords are comfortable in their historical and sort of future operating expense increases. So we do see a lot of tenants successfully negotiating, certainly in the LOI stage, a cap on controllable operating expenses. We see those range from 4%, 5% to up to 7 or 8%. Um, rarely do annually. That, annually, that doesn't seem like that much of a cap. <laughs> yeah, well, it, exactly. But some oh, you, you must be a landlord uh, attorney. Uh, mostly, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do represent some tenants, but uh, 
But we see them on just controllables. And yeah. so depending on which side of the table you're sitting on is going to determine how you define what controllable operating expenses are. Yeah, so, so for the business owner that may mm -hmm. be listening, uh, what are some of the basics? Controllable expenses and non-controllable expenses that the landlord may be passing along to you that you're trying to cap? For non, and it's mainly a definition of non-controllables, and most tenants are going to want those to be taxes, insurance, utilities. Landlords are going to ex want to expand those. Owners are going to want to expand those to a lot of times security expenses, depending on where your building's located, the type of security you're required to provide. Um, if you're in downtown Atlanta or midtown Buckhead, your security is more than likely going to be much more expansive and and expensive. If you're out in suburban Atlanta, or not Atlanta, but a suburban market, mm -hmm. um, your your expenses are probably going to be a lot less. You may have a roving guard, and, and, and that's you can't a good, really control and, those. And it's a good point that it's not mm -hmm. controllable because if your tenants, for some reason, at certain times, something's going on and they need more security, you need right. to give it to them. You do, yeah. and if it, if a specific tenant asks for that, then that's their expense. But right. if it's an expense for the building, um, a lot of times you don't control what those are. But you also want to intrude in the non-controllable bucket things like uh, governmental expenses that are unforeseen that now the government's requiring you to do some retrofit to your building. If it's capital in nature, more than likely you're not going to be able to pass it through. But if it's a non-capital expenditure, you do want the ability to pass that through and not be subject to a cap because you don't really control, as we know, what the government's going to tell you to do. So there are different buckets and different expectations depending on what side you're on. If you're an owner, you also want to make sure those caps are cumulative and compounding so that the cap in and of itself can grow over time. And if you're a tenant, you, a big oops would be not to say it's just a 5% or 3% cap. That way, you know, you can control and budget what your expense increases could potentially be any yeah. given year. So. And what do you say if you're a landlord or you're representing a landlord and, and the tenant is trying to cap all the expenses, operating expenses, and the tenant says to you, look, we have to know what our rent's going to be. Our total occupancy cost needs to be in our budget uh, to approve it and to, to know what if we can make it and pay your rent. What do you say to them? Well, no. <laughs> you would say no. Um, I mean, there are some expenses you just really yeah. can't control increases on. Yeah. So I think it's reasonable and it's a very market kind of, of approach to take is we'll cap the majority of them. Or if you're willing to, to negotiate something, you'll say it's a non-cumulative cap, so at least you have some control over that. Or we'll limit it just to taxes, insurance, and utilities. And so there is a small number of things that could potentially increase more than 5% or yeah. 3%. So. And, and if you're a tenant and you run a business, you may say, well, I have a full service lease, and mm -hmm. so it includes all their operating expenses, right. but you probably have an expense stop, right? Right. Where so expenses over a certain level the year the lease started, you are paying those. So you still have to pay attention to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And most of the leases that I work on are full service with either a base year or an expense stop. And a base year just means that the, year, the first year of your lease typically is going to, that number of operating expenses will be in your rent. And so you really don't start paying any kind of operating expenses till the following calendar year. And only to the extent that they've increased over that first year. So yeah. there is some sort of natural uh, limitation on how much landlords will charge or can charge. And truthfully, it's also a marketing uh, risk for landlords. If their, if their expenses increase 5 to 10% a year, they're going to lose a lot of their tenants. Right, so. right. And then obviously it matters the, the size and credit uh, that the tenant is bringing to the table, right? Always. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's always a big factor. Right. Now, with operating expenses, you typically don't 
yeah. worry about that as much or look at that as much because again they're they're the expenses of the building and everybody yeah. needs to pay their their fair share okay what would be your number three item that oops so we've talked about in the uh, in the previous segment guarantees mm -hmm. uh, now we've talked about operating expenses and control what would be number three on the oops list <laughs> The one thing that we always try to avoid and, and or when we're drafting to be very careful are expansion rights. Those from a landlord's perspective can be a big gotcha because A, they're sometimes hard to, uh, well, I won't say hard to, but they're another burden for the administration folks to keep up with uh, all these various options that are being granted. Um, right, and these mm -hmm. options where a tenant leases space and they have an option for another floor right. or space contiguous to them, right? Right. And now the new landlord, the new asset manager uh, doesn't remember that lease right. and he's doing a new lease, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and you've got to make sure that you know exactly who's got rights to that floor and whether, you're, whether it's a right of first offer, whether it's a right of first refusal. Um, and they're very different animals. And depending on how you draft them, um, and you just got to make sure you don't miss one because once you build out space next to a tenant who actually had rights to that space, they'll come knocking. Right, and I think it's uh, you see it more so than maybe we did years ago. I've been in this business for a long time because tenants are a lot more concerned about flexibility today. Absolutely. Right? They love to be able to reduce the amount of space or increase the amount of space Absolutely. at their whim. <laughs> Uh, because they want the exact square footage. I know I have some tenants coming and say, I want 20,122 square feet. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and tenants do that. And, and during the recession, we mm -hmm. saw tenants, of course, it was a huge tenants market. Mm -hmm. And tenants were getting right of first refusals, right of first offer, expansion rights, contraction options, termination options. I mean, they're, they're you know, sort of their special clauses were five and six and seven pages long. You don't see that as much right now, but they do want to be able to control their growth, either up or down. So it's a very legitimate um, you know, thing that tenants want. It's just a, man a question of how you are grant granting those. From a landlord's perspective, you don't like to give a lot of you know, first refusal rights because then you've actually gone to the market, taken that space, you've got a deal already in play, and now you've got to go back and offer it to an existing tenant. So landlords really do stray away from those if they can. So first right of offer would be safer for a landlord than the first right of refusal. Right. That way, when the space comes available, you're taking the tenant, hey, you want it. Right. If you don't, we're going to market. Exactly. So you right. don't have an active deal you know, out there with a tenant sitting and waiting, and now they've got to wait another two weeks before you've cleared those rights. Yeah. So. But a tip for a tenant is they want all those options to expand and, and renew their lease, but we're talking expansion now, that they can get. Right. Right. So, and, and a lot of tenants are, are going to really need them and, and want them. So what's your tip to a landlord that, that has a, a multi-tenant office building and they know they have some of these first ride refusals? How, how do they manage it? Well, you either, you have to have a really good database mm -hmm. of, of what all these rights are that have been granted. We routinely do abstracts for landlords when they're buying buildings, and so it out lays out all of these various options that are in the existing leases. They typically turn those over to their management group. They'll put together a spreadsheet database, and that's how they keep up with them. Yeah. And it's, there's just a big checks and balances that you've got to make yeah. sure you're doing. Well, I, that's smart because I think mm -hmm. – uh, our listeners know that on retail properties, it's extremely important. There's so many things that oh, can yeah. violate another lease. But I think sometimes you may think on an office deal, uh, maybe you don't have to worry about it as much, but, but you can get into a problem area. Absolutely. Right. And, and when you're drafting these, you want to make sure a, sort of a big oops that, that I've seen happen is and with the right of first refusal, if, you, if a tenant has a right to, say, half a floor, but you've got a deal on the table for the full floor, 
you want to make sure your refusal right is very specific that if you take that deal, you take all of that deal right. so that you're not then losing a potentially a bigger and better deal to, to give a tenant that's, now granted, they're an existing tenant, they should have some sort of leverage, but you don't, you don't want to lose a bigger deal to give a half a floor to an existing tenant. So. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, I think there's at least 100 items Absolutely. That, that can be gotchas in at least. But we're going to talk about number four after this short break. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today our topic, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. My guest is Laura Hall. She's a partner with the law firm Sheely Hall Williams. And we talked about two or three things already. Now I'm going to talk about one more that I think is really important to me. And I, I seem to, I, and we sell a lot of investment properties at my shop around the southeast. And this is one of the things that when we start selling investment properties and we're dealing with the tenants and things, the options to renew, that the tenants have options to renew their lease right. can be a, a lot of struggles for landlords and tenants. So uh, what do you think about options to renew? What are your tips? Um, well, virtually every lease you deal with has one. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is they rarely get exercised. At least that's my experience. Mm -hmm. And so if you're drafting these, you want to make sure you've got very good time frames. If you're a landlord, you want a much longer period of time to require the tenant yes. to exercise it. So that if they don't exercise it, then you can either go to the negotiation table with the tenant and start talking terms, or you can start marketing the space. If you're a tenant, you want to make sure that your time periods are a little bit shorter. However, if you're not staying, you obviously need time to find a new home and to negotiate that new deal and to move. Um, but, I, you know, it's interesting. I rarely see them exercised. Yeah. Um, the, the parties will come to the table even months before the, the notice period even runs yeah. and start sitting down talking about it. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the important things to think about when you're involved as a right. landlord or a tenant in an option to renew. It's a unilateral right. It's the tenant's typically right. right. And typically they have a set rent amount. Right. And so they they have the right just to do that. So unless the, the market is a lot higher rent, which you, you might get in some markets, at this point, but uh, because rents have gone up a good bit, so we might see more renewal options. But uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I like to tell uh, tenants is you know get any and all renewal options you can. But then on the landlord side, it's like I know you're going to have to give some renewal options to tenants, but when you can avoid it, avoid it because Absolutely. especially if they only have to give six or 12 months notice to renew, it can really put you in a bind. It absolutely can, and so you do want to avoid it and and with any kind of sophisticated tenant that's represented, mm -hmm. they're going to have mm -hmm. renewal options. It's mm -hmm. rare that they don't. So if, if you know, the oops for, for a lot of times with tenants is you want to make sure that there's a mechanism, if you do exercise the option and you can't come to terms on the rate or the, the terms of the, of the renewal, make sure that you have some kind of a, a mechanism to arbitrate or determine that rate. And we refer to it as commercial baseball arbitration or some other type of arbitration that you can go to 
to come up with a fair determination. Again, in many years of practice, I have seen one arbitration actually go full-blown. I'm sure it happens, but, yeah. but, but you do want that protection in your lease because otherwise, yeah. it, the gotcha is if you can't come to terms, then more than likely your renewal option just expires. Yeah, and you're talking about a renewal option the tenant has, but it's at a then-market rate. Right. And, and, and as a broker, I, I hate the, those situations because right. it seems like I'm putting the parties in a situation t that they have to agree to agree. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, and I don't like putting clients in that position that they have to agree to agree. Right. You know, let's say, all right, let, I prefer uh, as a tenant rep, especially <laughs> that, hey, there's a set rate. And then if, if you're the tenant, you don't want to pay that rent. It's not market. Then you, obviously you can talk about it because it's your right to renew. And I love your point on the time frame. I mean, if you're a landlord, boy, get as much advance notice Absolutely. as possible because your hands are so tied. And then uh, as a tenant, you, you probably want the shortest you can get so you have more flexibility. But you can't wait until then because you, you don't have any time left. So let's right. say you got six months renewal option, you're a tenant. And you start, you know, seven months before the end of the lease, you start talking, well, you, you're, you're going to be there. You right. have no time. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> you, you've negotiated yourself into a, a no-win situation. So Right. So you're going to take that renewal option at that right. rate. Right. Uh, uh, if the landlord is negotiating on his own behalf well, that's what you're going to end up doing, right? That, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and, you know, it's interesting. We rarely see stated Rate, rental rates in renewal options mm -hmm. in office. I know in retail that's pretty mm -hmm. common, mm -hmm. but in office uh, leases, you rarely see that the rate's going to continue at a 3% escalation or that it's yeah. going to be starting at some rate because, as we've seen, the markets have gone all over the place yeah. depending on what's going on in the world. Again, so. you're doing a lot of work on the landlord side. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. Uh, on the tenant rep side, we're like, you know, if you, in my mind, as a, as a tenant rep guy, if uh, you don't have a set rate, you don't have much of an option. You know, um, yeah, you can not be thrown out of the space, right. but you know, who knows what market is. And when you're trying to run a business, uh, it's hard to, to, to budget that or whatever the market might be. Uh, you know, in some of these markets, uh, you know, our office in Atlanta, and, and there hasn't been a lot of new construction. You know, we've, we've seen rent increases on office space like we've never seen before. Absolutely. Uh, our rents are still really low for a major market around the U.S., but still there's some rate shock going on. There is, and, mm -hmm. and if you have that situation from a landlord's perspective where there are stated numbers in the lease, you really hope that tenant misses their, <laughs> their renewal right. option. But, um, but we have seen a, a tremendous growth in rental rates and certainly in a lot of markets. And, um, but the, having the prevailing market rate thing in there is actually a fairly market mm -hmm. term these days mm -hmm. to, to base it on whatever is in market. And that can be yeah. good for each, either party or bad yeah. for either party. So. I, I agree it's market. When I'm a landlord rep, it's market. That is, that is exactly <laughs> That's what right. everyone's doing. Okay. Well, one of the things that uh, – well, let's ask you this. So uh, what are some of the new things in office leases that you're, you're seeing come up? Uh, you mentioned something earlier that we, we deal with a lot in retail leases, but we don't seem to see it as much in office leases, and that's kind of a real determination or right of use and exclusives, right? Right. One thing I've seen several of lately is where some of your bigger tenants, and we're talking, you know, 10% of your building or somewhere in that in that number, are, are being successful in operating in, in adding an operating covenant so that the landlord is not able to lease space to a competitor. And in office buildings, that's a little bit unusual. You don't yeah. see that near as much because 
Um, to me, it's sort of a natural exclusion. If you're a brokerage company and or a law firm and there's another big law firm in your building already or another big brokerage group, in your, you're more than likely not want to, going to want to go to that building, particularly if that building has become known as the XYZ company's building. Um, so I don't, I don't really see in the, you know, I don't see that it gives a lot of benefit to the tenant to give those types of exclusions. What it does is it presents, you know, again, a sort of another gotcha for a landlord if they forget about it because it is an unusual provision and they do lease space to another law firm that could be deemed a competitor. Um, you know, certainly not all law firms compete with one another um, right. or, or brokerage groups, but it's been something that I've seen more in the last year to two than I've seen probably in a while. Well, it's very common in retail, yeah. but yeah. certainly oh, yeah. not in, yeah. in office. Well, it's interesting because agglomeration, sometimes there's benefits for similar companies in the same industry to be close to each other. True. Uh, you know, for, for, for attracting talent, retaining talent. Uh, so it's interesting to see that. And we're the largest tenant in our building and we're on the top floor right. and I actually thought about that when we went in our our building and we have signage on the front of the of the building on the monument signs right. and I thought about that do I want that I'm like you know what no I I would like uh, lots of brokerage companies in this building yeah. uh, that would be fine with me we love our competitors and we love to compete and uh, yeah, I think it would be great for my building to be known but but it's interesting that you're seeing that in an office environment more I yeah. am and it's it's you have to be very careful how you draft it because yeah. you obviously want to make sure the oops you want to avoid is if that tenant assigns the lease to you know a law firm assigns their lease to a, a brokerage company or a financial services group all of a sudden you still got this this covenant in there that says you can't lease to a law firm so you want to make sure from a drafting standpoint that you are having those types of restrictions go away based on some triggering event, either defaults or assignments or something else, just right. to give some protection. So I guess then there's more importance uh, in that situation and than there used to be in an office lease about use of the space, right? What you can yeah. use the space, a general office. Right, 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 right. right. too vague now? Well, but <laughs> yes, no, that is very, very common that that's all it says. Yeah. So, yeah. and so when you're when you're leasing space and you're saying we want yeah, lease space to a competitor, again, you just have to make sure that you're covering yourself if those competitors are really no longer relevant. Right. Right. So. Yeah, and then if you're agreeing to that now, uh, and in, in a previous lease, you know that wasn't restricted, and they can change their use. You might not be able to. Exactly. You might be able to honor that agreement. It's true, but in but, office buildings, that's pretty uncommon, yeah, probably. Yeah. So because your brokerage groups. All right, so let's talk about a tip. What would you leave our audience with with a tip related to office leases? Um, probably with respect to the things that I don't like to see in office leases, you know, deal around with assignment and sublet. A lot of tenants want complete and unconditional abilities to assign their lease to somebody else. The one practice tip I've got for landlords is make sure that you've got some good financial covenants in there for your for your protection. You don't want those leases to simply be uh, given to somebody else and you have no control over who's coming into your building. And it's not really from a use standpoint because in office buildings you're typically going to have just a straight up office use. It's really how well are they going to be able to pay the rent. And from a, from a tenant standpoint, they don't want to have any handcuffs. If we're still liable, then you should look to both of us. But obviously from a, t a landlord's perspective, they're concerned about the creditworthiness of the outgoing tenant and the incoming tenant. So just be careful on drafting um, to be able to, to make sure you're covered from a financial standpoint. 
tenants, again, want full and unconditional abilities to, to do what they want to with their business. Right. So. Yeah. And, 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 and speaking of that, you know, we rep tenants, and sometimes we go in a building, and just the nature of the tenants in the building right. turn off our tenant. Absolutely. You know, so if, the, if they start they subleasing to tenants that, you know, are walking around and mud on their shoes. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, or oh, it's, this is financial building. Exactly. Or yeah. you, you've got a tenant in there. It could be a governmental entity or some yeah. other type of tenant who has a lot of just, and, and so it, it, it puts a strain on your parking. It puts a strain on your elevator right. and your services because all of a sudden you've got all these people coming in and out of your building. So yeah. there are a lot of sort of natural deterrents to, to office leasing and from your standpoint that keep a lot of companies from not wanting to go into a That's building. That's right. So. Well, Laura, thanks for joining us. Glad to do it. Great insight. Thank you. And thanks for joining us there on the radio stations around the country, or maybe you're on YouTube, iTunes, or the show website. Please comment, uh, follow, share. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for being with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay tuned. We'll have more on Oops. Should have covered that in the lease. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit GetValuate.com. That's GetValuate.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today our show title, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. Hopefully... You don't have those situations, but we want you to avoid them, right? Well, please welcome my next guest. This is John Neville. He's a partner with the law firm Arnold Golden Gregory. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And let's talk about retail leases, and let's start in this segment on the landlord side and, and maybe touch briefly on some of the top five gotchas, <laughs> some of the top five things as a landlord and a retail lease, and maybe in some cases really any lease uh, that you'd want to watch out for. What would you say is number one? You know, number one is I, I would say just say no. And by that I mean most landlord forms are going to have a list of what that landlord is allowed to charge as a pass-through expense mm-hmm. in managing the shopping center, and managing the parking lot. And sometimes that list can be a paragraph long in the landlord lease. Sometimes that list can be three pages long. And tenants, if they're represented, are going to want to negotiate that paragraph as to what's in and what's out. The problem is is that the more tenants you have in a project, the harder it becomes to individually negotiate that list for each tenant. Tracking one expense out of 50 that may or may not be included can be difficult if not impossible. And so as a landlord, you're setting your client up to, to breach its lease effectively by passing through a cost that was negotiated out between the lawyers, right. but property management never recorded it. Right. You might have 18 or 118 leases in one property, right? That's right. And they have all different things that can be included that can be passed through or not, or different limitations and things like that. It's, it can be very confusing for the management. So I'm a fan of instead of having you know individual negotiations of what's in and what's out, mm-hmm. start with a reasonable list so that if there are things that you would automatically not pass through if asked, Let's just take that out of our form, right, and, and make the list reasonable. But then stick to that list, and instead, if we need to negotiate CAMs to make, I mean, CAPs to make the economics work, we can negotiate CAPs. Okay. But I would prefer not to have the individuals in and out yeah. Um, negotiated. Yeah, and that's a good tip because in the practice, uh, the managers are probably going to 
treat everyone the same anyway, and now you're valuing the lease. So what's number two? Number two, I think, is we need to make sure that we're controlling the construction process. And I will say as a lawyer, this is a place that I think we, we miss sometimes because lawyers aren't experts in construction. Mm -hmm. But there are certain things that we need to make sure as a landlord that we're controlling. Timing of plans, um, timing of, of having work done in the space so it doesn't interfere with others. And I think also making sure we control as a landlord what is submitted because a lot of lease forms could allow the tenant to make submittals to governmental authorities before the landlord has even fully approved what's being submitted. And that can start a dangerous process that's hard to undo. Right, and because in retail, you may have more of the tenants uh, doing the work and handling things than you would have in an industrial office lease, right? That's exactly right. It yeah. is typical in a uh, retail lease that the tenant will have a work letter yeah. of things that they are supposed to do in that space once the space is delivered. Also in a tenant uh, retail lease, there, there's contemplated work that could be done once that tenant is open, two or three, four years down the road. And again, I think the landlord just needs to make sure that they have control over that process, approval rights over that process, and again, approval in particular before things are submitted to the government. Right, because you mentioned it could start a train, right? It can. I mean, undoing it, trying, it's hard enough sometimes to get governmental authorities to start a review. Right. much less to go to them and say, pause, we need to resubmit because there are additional comments. Right. It um, can add delay for everyone, which is bad. Okay. Number three on the retail lease for a landlord oops list. <laughs> yeah, you know, Michael, I think here lately uh, co-tenancies are becoming more and more common. Um, everyone was bit in 2007 and 2008 on co-tenancies, and, and they didn't do them for a while. And I think the market is having them come back again. Mm -hmm. The reason that's relevant is, is that in leases, especially bigger leases, we need to make sure that our retail tenants open. Um, I'm okay not having ongoing continuous operations clauses because um, frankly, I think if someone pays the money to open, they will stay open at least for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of these co-tenancy clauses are tied to other tenants being open. Right. Um, having a remedy of just that the landlord can terminate if the tenant doesn't open is insufficient. You know, we need monetary penalties, much like you would see in a construction contract, of if the tenant doesn't open on time, you know, is a per diem of X, and then maybe it increases to a per diem of Y if more time goes by. But something with teeth to make that tenant get open on time. Right, right. And uh, number four. Well, we want to make sure that we have some predictability in our project. Right, it's a, each tenant is going to want to have some flexibility, and we may talk about that if we're talking about tenant issues. But at the same time, to have a tenant state that they want flexibility to, to do whatever doesn't really work for a project. And, and a tenant may say, well, we'll agree not to violate any other tenant's use, or we'll agree not to violate any other exclusive. You know, that's a given. You know, but I think we need more than that if we're a landlord. We might have a certain flavor that we want for our project. We may only want certain types of retailers. Especially today in retail, right? Because it's more about the experience, right? Correct. And you've got to really control what these tenants are doing or your project could go downhill. And, and one tenant that doesn't fit can start a trend of multiple tenants that do, that do not fit in that project. Right. And, and the next thing you know, again, the landlord can lose control. Similarly, Michael, I think you need control over whether your tenant has, is a franchise concept or a franchisor, mm -hmm. uh, or whether your tenant is something that has never been franchised to begin with, because there is a difference in operations between a franchise concept and, and a corporate store. And um, you know, if the tenant can ch make that change without your say-so as a landlord, that could also change the direction of your project. Right, and also that can change the monetary value of the, of the project, right? Absolutely because can. Of the, because of the credit. 
Absolutely correct. Right. Okay. And number five. Well, let's go into the legal weeds for a minute. And, and, and this is something I think that's important for everyone to understand and spend a couple of minutes on. Um, there's a standard clause that we refer to in a lease called an exculpation clause. And it's a, a fancy word, but really all it means is that the landlord's liability is limited. Um, the landlord sometimes will have multiple assets and sometimes they won't depending on the structure they're financing. But in any event, we don't want to create an open-ended ticket for the tenant to be able to lay claim to assets of the landlord that aren't tied to this particular project. Right. Um, if you don't do a lot of retail or even leasing in general, this type of clause to a tenant may seem offensive. But it is standard in nearly every retail lease, certainly, and in most leases we see, that the landlord is able to limit its liability just to its equity interest in that project. Right. And sometimes, if the landlord is aggressive and, and fortunate, it can even limit its liability to its equity interest in the premises being leased. Right. Now, what that means practically is that if the tenant were to bring a lawsuit against the landlord, the most they could possibly recover is whatever landlord's equity is, either in that shopping center or in that premises. The language also is really clear to say that no principals, no directors, officers, um, employees, attorneys, yeah. <laughs> brokers can, can be sued tied to the particular deal. And again, if there is a legal action, that claim is only against the equity in the shopping center or the premises. Yeah, well, the shopping center seems fair if I'm a tenant, but maybe not just that space. <laughs> I think it depends on the bargaining power. I mean, if, you yeah. have a, if you have a project that the landlord owns without debt, you know, maybe it's a deal where the landlord bought it with partners and all equity, then, you know, it's all about how much money should the tenant be able to grab at when yeah. it makes a claim. Because yeah. you got to keep in mind, the landlord doesn't have an unlimited bucket to grab at the tenant either. You know, yeah. typically these tenant deals are structured where you have either a sole purpose entity or if they have multiple concepts, a regional entity, and, and that's all the landlord can sue. They may have a guarantee, but in today's day and age, the guarantee may be limited in scope. Yeah. So to have the tenant be able to come after a lot for the landlord, but yet landlord can't go after a lot for the tenant, it doesn't seem equitable. So this clause sort of offsets that a little bit. Yeah, and so next we're gonna talk about the tenant side because it's it's different, right? There's some things, uh, it's a different view, uh, that's for sure if you're a tenant or a tenant rep. So stay this one, we'll do that. And before we go, you know, one of the tips that we, you and I were talking about before uh, we recorded this show is that if you're a landlord, uh, make sure you're aware of all your leases in the project when you do a new lease so, so you don't have a problem. If we sell a lot of shopping centers and we get in there and there's a lease violating another lease, check it. Stay with us. We're going to talk about the tenant side. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you in commercial real estate brokerage? Check out Apto. Created by and for commercial real estate brokers, Apto is the leading web-based platform for managing relationships, properties, listings, deals, and back office. Visit apto.com slash CRE show. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Our topic today, oops, I should have covered that in the lease. And if you're a tenant, there is obviously hundreds and hundreds of things, but you want to watch out for and make sure that you do cover in your lease. So you're not saying oops, <laughs> but we're going to talk about five of them today with John Neville. He's a partner with Arnold Golden Gregory. joining us here in Studio One. John, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about at least five of them, and they're not really 
in an order of preference, but what, where are we starting with number one? I think number one is, is sort of what's most dangerous, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and that's landlords, unreasonable liabilities, perhaps, I mean, unreasonable um, remedies they may have against a tenant if that, if that tenant defaults. And the ones I want to focus on in particular are landlord lockout remedies mm-hmm. and landlord's right to shut off utilities. Mm-hmm. Because both in lockout and in shutting down of utilities, Landlord can, with one single action, put the tenant out of business, perhaps. Yeah. Because imagine the employee showing up one Tuesday morning and the space is locked with chains on the door. Yeah. That employee probably is going to start looking for another job. You know, imagine the customer showing up on a uh, Thursday afternoon to eat at their favorite restaurant and the space is dark inside. Yeah. Imagine what's going to happen to the food inside yeah. there if the landlord does that. Right. So I, I, I think, you know, a landlord that is allowed to, to go rogue effectively or go cowboy and take things into their own hands is a dangerous landlord. So in, in our tenant leases, we always say that a landlord cannot exercise a lockout right or they can't shut down the utilities unless that landlord goes to court and gets an order from a judge saying that they can take back the space and do that. Yeah. Now, there's one exception. And I'd let you guess what state this might be, but since we <laughs> talked about it before, you already know. I know. Um, in, in Texas, not surprisingly, yeah. people can go cowboy. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it is a, a standard remedy yeah. in Texas that a landlord will lock someone out before they go to court. And so if you're a lawyer negotiating for a tenant, or if you're a tenant negotiating your, your, your own terms here, and you dig in too hard on the lockout part in a deal in Texas, it's going to be clear that you're not from Texas, right? Because pe- people know that this is sort of standard. So, you know, what we try and do in Texas deals, at least, is ask for a second notice mm-hmm. before lockout. So it's a, hey, we're really serious. We're going to lock you out on Tuesday if you don't pay up. Right. And, and, and landlords in Texas typically will make that concession. Yeah. yeah. Utilities across the board, all 50 states. I can't think of any situation where a landlord should want to discontinue or should be allowed to discontinue utilities without a court order. Yeah. And I would say, Michael, too, as an aside, that if I represent a landlord, I don't want them locking out or shutting down utilities anyway. Yeah, the repercussions from that are... What if they're wrong? The waves are terrible. What if they're wrong? Yeah. They, the poor landlord's exposed. Yeah. So, um, you know, lockouts and, and utility shutdowns generally are bad remedies anyway, but if you're a tenant, yeah. they should be expressly prohibited. In yeah. Place. And how's that look in the center, <laughs> you know? Having a, having a dark center or a center with you know bad food going bad in the back yeah. of a cooler somehow somehow probably doesn't doesn't bode well for the next door neighbors. All right, so tenant retail tenant and maybe any any tenant, but what's number two? Tell you another scary thing we've come across in practice mm-hmm. is that the standard landlord assignment clauses will say that landlords get profits from any assignment or subletting. And it's really intended, and I say this objectively, it's really intended to mean that the tenant shouldn't be able to profit from that landlord's space. They're meant to be the rental rate. That's the intent. I, right. I, I believe, truly, yeah. that the intent is, is that the tenant should not be able to mark up the rent by 50% and benefit from the landlord's space. That's the intent, but... In reality, the clause actually says 30% of the time that any proceeds net that are received by the tenant that are connected with a transfer of the tenant's business belongs to landlord. <laughs> Talk about oops. The yeah. result could be is that you could wind up selling your business and the proceeds of that asset sale actually are landlord's property. Wow. And there are cases out there and examples out there where that actually has been enforced. Wow. So when you're looking at the assignment clause and looking at the clause where the landlord is able to keep profit from your assignment or sale, you always have to accept out asset purchase deals and goodwill 
yeah. and things that aren't tied to the lease right. and say that in no event does landlord get any of that stuff. Right. Otherwise, you're effectively left with a business as a tenant you can't sell. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, lease can have some value on its own merits outside of the business, right? If the rent's under market, mm -hmm. uh, it's got a lot of term left. There's a lot of good build out, uh, but uh, that's, a, that's a good point. So what's number three? Well, the third thing is that it's also amazing that as a tenant, you know, and I got my start doing all tenant work, right? Mm -hmm. And as, as practices grow and you meet people, you do other things. And so now we're a little more even. But, but, you know, this was always my hot button from day one when I started representing tenants. Mm -hmm. It's amazing there are no landlord default clauses in landlord form leases. It's simply not addressed in most landlord lease forms. And so you're left to wonder, is notice needed? How much notice? Can I exercise self-help? Can I not? Can I offset rent? The answer is usually no. Mm -hmm. Or can I not? Right. And, and, and ultimately, if there's silence, you're probably left with an action for damages and not much more. Yeah. And if you heard the prior segment, we talked about there's a clause in that lease that limits the damages even to landlord's equity interest in the shopping center of the premises. Yeah. So in reality, you're left with a really small action against a really small pool of assets that just doesn't work. Right. So, you know, you need to work into your landlord remedies uh, to your remedies for a landlord default practical remedies, right. which mean that if there's a if there's a repair that needs to be made and it's damaging my business, I probably need to be able to make that repair. Meaning self-help. Self-help, but yeah. not necessarily offset. I mean, yeah. offset is great, and I'm gonna ask for an offset right to get my money back all the time. Yeah. But as long as I have the right to self-help, practically speaking, that keeps me fighting another day as a tenant. Right. Um, I need that right. Yeah. I probably need injunctive relief. If the landlord is going to do something really bad, if they're gonna violate my exclusive, right. I need to be able to go in and stop them. Yeah. I don't want them to be able to do it and then have some remedy of getting rent back. Right. You know, I, I want to stop a violation. Yeah. So there are certain remedies we need to address and if the lease is silent on landlord default, you don't have those remedies. What do you say to a tenant that, or let's say you're, you're on the tenant side here, and the landlord says to you, but look, we're uh, ABC landlord, we're big, we would never do anything, You'd never, we're never going to default, you're never gonna have to have that issue with us. Michael Benoit wants a covenant in that lease that is an automatic landlord default if they transfer the property. <laughs> okay, because you might sell it tomorrow. They'll, they'll, they'll quickly, quickly change their tune on that. Now, yeah. where I thought you were going is if the landlord says, well, you know, we're too big, we're a big company, you're a small tenant, you don't get this. Yeah. And the answer is fine, you know, I can understand that. But at a minimum, why would you not want me to quickly remedy something that is going wrong in my space. Right. Maybe I don't get an offset right. Maybe I've just got to show you an invoice landlord and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Right. But give me that opportunity. Right. Let me deal with this quickly. I can do it better than you. Right, okay. And what's number four? Well, let's focus on retail in, in particular here because retail concepts are evolving. The whole nature of retail is evolving. You know, retail as, a, as an industry, I think is thriving more than anyone realizes right now. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason it's thriving is because people are doing different things with retail. You have Bonobos, for instance, it's more of a showroom store. You know, you have a lot of things that are called Amazon-proof companies, whether it's workout facilities or daycare centers or, you know, other things that you can't buy on the internet where these businesses are booming in retail shopping centers. Right. We need the flexibility if we're a tenant to be able to let our brand evolve as the market evolves. It could be as simple as if we're a restaurant to offer a new menu item. But it could also be as complex as shifting a store from being one of primarily where you walk in and pull something off the shelf to where you can alternatively walk in and pick up an order you made on the internet. 
And a lot of tenant use clauses simply don't allow for that. So, you know, we need to make sure, again, that the tail is not wagging the dog and that the lease doesn't dictate how we can evolve our brand as a whole that we need to be able to evolve. Right. And it's an interesting concept in a retail lease for a tenant because the landlord is going to push back to you, look, I need to have control because, you know, some changes, some subtle changes in what you do can really impact my center. And at the end of the day, I think as a landlord, you want to make sure that tenant is thriving and open. Yeah. You know, your most important thing, again, as we mm-hmm. talked about in the prior segment, is that more and more leases require co-tenancy. And you want to see as a landlord me being open as a tenant and me operating as a tenant and being successful right. and driving people to the center. Right. If you don't let me evolve my use, I can't do that. Now, I do understand that I can't violate others' prohibited uses. I can't violate others' exclusives. I actually even understand that we can't shift away from what is the core of our business. We can't go from being a clothing store to a workout place. I understand all that. But, But these subtle evolutions of concepts have to be permitted within reason. Right. And we're talking retail tenants clauses that's oops <laughs> make sure you cover so what's number five well i think it's also specifically tied to retail it's on an exclusive so many tenants even small tenants are able to negotiate exclusive rights to do something right. the problem is is that a lot of these exclusives are tied to somebody operating as a primary business that might compete with you and so as a lawyer we'll negotiate well what does it mean to be a primary business and you might say well 15 percent of sales so i might have an exclusive for hamburgers as a primary business And it could say, well, you know, if you sell more than 15% of your sales as hamburgers, then you're a primary business and you're violating. But what people don't think about is how do you check that? How do you make sure that next door neighbor is really not selling more than 15% of hamburgers? Most tenant leases don't have a right to audit that next door neighbor's sales. A lot of landlord forms don't even provide the right to audit sales on that level of detail. So if you're going to negotiate an exclusive, especially if it's gonna be tied to a percentage of sales, or a percentage of items on a menu if you're a restaurant, or square footage within a store. Make sure there's a way to independently and easily verify that. Otherwise, you're left with a negotiated right that you can't enforce. Right, yeah, that's interesting because I think we have a lot of people that own real estate here around the country listen to the show and a lot of the all the large owners of retail properties will have these right to understand sales of their tenants but you see some uh, smaller uh, tenants and salt, smaller landlords and smaller buildings where they don't even have the right to even know what sales are and that's something you really want to know about well if, if you don't have the right to know what sales are you certainly can enforce an exclusive right. tied to somebody not selling more than 15 percent hamburgers for instance right so you just need to make sure you've thought through how you can actually find out if your clause is being honored or not. Okay. Michael, I think we gotta mention SNDAs just yeah. because we do one every time we're on the radio together. Yeah. And I would just say listen to another show on that. But that would be like the the five B topic that we should have. Well, on this list. you brought it up, so hey, we, we gotta <laughs> mention it. So what's important with an SNDA? I think people just need to understand what it is. And yeah. and, and you know, it falls in that bucket of things that we don't it's hard enough to be an operating tenant today mm-hmm. and, and have a successful business without having outside factors that aren't in your control impact your business. Mm -hmm. And what we don't want is we don't want the landlord going upside down on its note with its bank and suddenly forcing you as a tenant to go out of business. And so at its very core, an SNDA, which is a document between that tenant and the the landlord's bank, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we want that so that if landlord and bank relationship goes south, 
hopefully the tenant can still stay afloat. Right. And as a tenant, you may think, well, I've, I, this is a big landlord. It's well known in our community or maybe in the country. But, you know, that 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 may that entity may work on its own. They may have a loan on that on that property that has no guarantees on it. Uh, and if that property is upside down, even the biggest landlord may say, you know what, we're out of here. Right. <laughs> That's right. And then, and then you're stuck if you're a tenant without an SNDA. Yeah. Uh, you know, people need to understand that if there is a, a foreclosure or, mm -hmm. you know, the minute action is taken on, on that loan, mm -hmm. your lease as a matter of law vanishes. Mm -hmm. And then the lender has the right, if it wants to, to recognize your lease. Yeah. Um, I understand why a lender would want that right. But if you're a tenant, you know, you don't want to make it an option as to whether you get to continue your business. Yeah. You know, you'd like to have some agreement up front. Now, yeah. a tenant needs to be willing to grant that lender rights, too. Um, because the lender, you know, sh it shouldn't have to be a one-way street. Yeah. But that's why you have a negotiated SNDA. Well, it's an interesting point. And we've seen in the single-tenant world where uh, businesses were buying notes where their competitors had space, mm -hmm. right, and, and didn't have SNDAs. So, right, so really they could buy the note, foreclose on the property, take over the space. <laughs> the location. So it's a crazy world. Make sure you don't have, oops, it should have covered that in the lease. John, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Great insight. And thanks for joining us on YouTube, iTunes, the show a website, wherever you're watching the show or listening on the radio stations. And be sure and join us next week. Our show is going to be incredible. It's going to be, the name of it is End of the Expansion Cycle or Beginning of a Robust Economy. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us for Atlanta's Commercial Real Estate Show, brought to you by Bull Realty Asset and Occupancy Solutions. Apto, your entire brokerage in the cloud. Excelligent, building data everywhere. And get Valuate online investment analysis. For more on Atlanta commercial real estate, visit CREshow.com and click the tab Atlanta.